0: Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW, 94.9 Seattle. Ellen Bass was welcomed to McCaw Hall on February 28th as part of Seattle Arts and Lectures Poetry Series. Her most recent work is Like a Beggar, a book the New York Times wrote pulses with sex, humor, and compassion. She teaches at Pacific University in Oregon.
1: Good evening, My name is Rebecca Hoogs and I have the great pleasure of serving as the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. I'm delighted to welcome you to an evening with Ellen Bass. I'd like to begin by thanking the many partners who have made this evening possible. Thanks go to our presenting sponsor, The Seattle Times. Thanks to our series sponsor, Charles and Barbara Wright. Thanks to our reception sponsor, Woodenville Wine Country, and to our hotel sponsor, The Four Seasons. Thanks to our poetry media partners, Poetry Northwest and Crab Creek Review. Thanks to our organizational sponsors, all of whom are listed in our program. And special thanks for significant support of our public programs, Go To For Culture, the Amazon Literary Partnership, Arts Fund, Nordstrom, and the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture. Huge thanks to our bookstore partner, Open Books, and thanks to all of you for being here with us tonight. A round of applause for everybody. Thank you. (laughs) The format for this evening will be a reading by Ellen Bass, whom I will then join on stage for a conversation. I will include as many of your questions as we have time for, so if you have a question for Ellen, please write on a card in your program and pass it to an usher. If you are tweeting, Facebooking, Instagramming, or otherwise posting about tonight's event, our hashtag is Sal Bass. To officially open our evening, I am proud to introduce a student from our Writers in the Schools program. This year, WITS will work with 26 area public schools and at Seattle Children's Hospital by matching them with local, professional, creative writers to inspire over 6,000 students to write their own poems, stories, memoirs, and comics. Tonight's reader, Angelique Brock, will be sharing a poem she wrote last year while working with Ritz writer-in-residence Damon Arendelle at West Seattle High School. Please join me in welcoming Angelique Brock reading her poem, Beige.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Really short. My beige. My beige is boring. My beige is plain vanilla, uneventful, uninteresting, unexciting, uninspiring. My beige is bland and tired. My beige is as boring as going through the thesaurus looking for all those damn synonyms for boring. My beige is like a blank wall. Empty. Nothing. My beige is for nothing. My beige is a color people paint their walls because they know it'll go with anything. My beige is the color of a hearing aid lodged in an elderly man's ear. To senile, to fight, he rambles on to no one in particular, wishing for someone to listen. My beige is neutral. My beige doesn't know when to speak up, when to stand up, or how to use its voice. My beige is submissive. My beige is compliant. My beige is too scared to be anything other than invisible. My beige is less than nothing. Because beige has no identity. Beige will not put up a fight. Beige is for white noise and elevator music and the kids who never talk back and for those who don't care. Beige is for never once testing the boundaries and for accepting things as they are. Beige is for faltering at the end of a sentence cause you're uh, unsure. <laughs> beige is for all the things I hate and sometimes my beige Feels like all the things I am. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Angelique. We'll have copies of Angelique's poem at our information table after the event, and you can also find it on our blog, salblog.org. After a wild week of wild weather, it is an especial delight to welcome Ellen Bass, a ray of Santa Cruz sun, to Seattle. <laughs> Bass is the author of eight books of poetry. The first five were written in her first incarnation as a poet, which was nurtured in part by an early teacher, Anne Sexton. This first epic also included her co editing of the groundbreaking anthology, No More Masks, an anthology of poems by women. Then she paused. Her attention shifted to her work as a workshop leader, an activist, and an advocate for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. This period of her life saw her pen several important and influential texts, including I Never Told Anyone, Writings by Women Survivors of Child Sexual Abuse, and The Courage to Heal, A Guide for Women Survivors of Child Sexual Abuse. After a dozen years or so, the desire to reignite her life as a poet was kindled. And so she began again. She learned, with the help of her next mentor, Dorian Lux, how to be a poet again, how to be a poet anew. The three books that have resulted include two from our very own Copper Canyon Press, The Human Line and Like a Beggar. Her work is groundbreaking, down to earth. It is in the earth. It gets a little dirty, often. It's sexy, ripe, juicy. It makes you laugh. It tells secrets. It invites you in. Bass is a self-proclaimed intimacy junkie, and the poems want to hole up with you in a dark bar and talk about black holes in the universe and how beautiful it all is, even when it's utterly terrifying out there. Bass is ripe with praise. She is melon heavy with odes. Her poems are like the accordion, an image that recurs in the most recent work. They expand and contract. They zoom in. And out, they breathe, they make music. Quote, being fully present for our most intense experiences, she has said, is a great challenge, but there is a depth of living that comes from that presence that is perhaps the only true consolation and the source of meaningful action. Robert Frost famously wrote that, quote, like a piece of ice on a hot stove, the poem must ride on its own melting. In other words, the poem's momentum comes from the risks it takes. These are the risks that Bass has been willing to take in service of her poems of gutsy empathy. So pull up a chair, the stove is hot, the ice is cold, and Bass's poems are ready to make you melt. Please join me in welcoming the wonderful Alan Bass.
0: Thank you for that intimate introduction. (laughs) Thank you, everybody at Seattle Arts and Lectures, for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. And just a special thanks to my Copper Canyon family. Thank you, Angelique. That was a beautiful, real poem. Thank you. Yeah, one more hand for her. And and thank you, people of Seattle. I got into my hotel, and this is what I saw. I don't know if you've seen this from Seattle Met, but what it says up here is, this is Sanctuary City, where the Constitution matters, diversity is celebrated, and all are welcome, underlined in red. That's a pretty fabulous thing to... See, the minute you come into some place. I love Seattle. I come here a lot. And when the traffic was all messed up, I knew how to get on the light rail. (laughs) I want to read you um, this passage uh, that was written during World War II by Catherine Ann Porter, just to acknowledge the times that we're in and the place of art. She wrote, The voice of an individual artist may seem perhaps of no more consequence than the whirring of a cricket in the grass, but the arts do live continuously, and they live literally by faith. Their names and their shapes and their uses and their basic meanings survive unchanged in all that matters through times of interruption, diminishment, neglect. They outlive governments and creeds and the societies, even the very civilizations that produced them. They cannot be destroyed altogether because they represent the substance of faith and the only reality. They are what we find again when the ruins are cleared away. So I'm going to read some um, poems from that are in, in my books, but I'm also going to read some new poems and kind of a mixture. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Thank you. Relax, bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breasts spilling out of her blouse. Or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really liked, will contract a disease that requires you to pry open its feverish mouth every four hours. (laughs) Your parents will die. No matter how many vitamins you take, how much Pilates, you'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. If your daughter doesn't plug her heart into every live socket she passes, You'll come home to find your son has emptied the refrigerator, dragged it to the curb, and called the used appliance store for a pickup drug money. The Buddha tells a story of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down. But there's also a tiger below. And two mice, one white, one black, scurry out and begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from the crevice. She looks up, down, at the mice. Then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen. You'll get fat. Slip on the bathroom tiles in a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is how the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. This poem is called, Reincarnation. Who would be- sorry. Who would believe in reincarnation if she thought she would return as an oyster. <laughs> Eagles and wolves are popular. Even domesticated cats have their appeal. It's not terribly distressing to imagine being Missy, nibbling kibble and lounging on the windowsill. But I doubt the toothsome oyster has ever been the totem of any shaman, fanning the motherpiece to row or smudging with sage. Yet perhaps we could do worse than aspire to be a plump bivalve. Humbly, the oyster persists in filtering seawater and fashioning the daily irritations into luster. Dash a dot of Tabasco, pair it with a dry martini. Not only will this tender button inspire an erotic fire in tuxedoed men and women whose shoulders gleam in candlelight, This hermit praying in its rocky cave, this anchorite of iron, protein, and calcium, is practically a Molluscan saint. Revered and sacrificed, body and salty liquor of the soul, the oyster is devoured, surrendering all, again and again, for love. I thought that would be a particularly wonderful poem to read in Seattle, where you have so many wonderful oysters. Don't forget to love them as you eat them. <laughs> this uh, next poem began when I bumped into uh, um, a website where they had lists of words that were difficult or or impossible to translate truly from one language to another. And uh, I got fascinated with them. And there's only a couple of them in this poem, but in the, in the original draft, there were like about 16 um, that I just fell in love with. Maybe, maybe I can use some of them somewhere else, but they're quite wonderful. Anyway, it's called The Small Country. Unique I think, is the Scottish tartle, that hesitation when introducing someone whose name you've forgotten. (laughs) And what could capture cafuné, the Brazilian Portuguese way to say running your fingers tenderly through someone's hair? Is there a term in any tongue for choosing to be happy? And where is speech for the block of ice we pack in the sawdust of our hearts? What appellation approaches the smell of apricots thickening the air when you boil jam in early summer? What words reach the way I touched you last night, as though I had never known a woman, an explorer wholly curious to discover each particular fold and hollow, without guide, not even the mirror of my own body. Last night you told me you like my eyebrows. You said you never really noticed them before. What is the word that fuses this freshness with the pity of having missed it? And how even touch itself Cannot mean the same to both of us, even in this small country of our bed, even in this language with only two native speakers. This next poem um, has my mother in it, and just one of the one of the great. There's so many gifts of writing poetry, but one of them is that you can kind of call people back um, and hang out with them again. So I loved writing this poem, and I I love getting to read it. It's called The Orange and White High-Heeled Shoes. I should dedicate this to you, Rebecca, (laughs) of the wonderful shoes. Today I'm thinking about those shoes, white with a tangerine stripe across the toe and forceful orange heels that fit both my mother and me. We used to shop like that, trying them on side by side. That was when there still was a man who would guide your who would cradle your heel in his palm and guide your foot. Sometimes he would think he made a sale, only to have one of us turn to the other, and he would have to kneel again, hoping to ease another naked soul into the bed of suede or leather. I thought those shoes were just the peak of chic, and my God, you bought me a pair of orange cotton gloves to complete the ensemble. Why is there such keen pleasure in remembering? You are dead 10 years, and these showy slippers, we wore them more than half a century ago. The first boy had not yet misted my breasts with his breath, and you were strong as a muscled goddess, gliding nylons over your calves, lifting your amplitude into a breastplate. Who will remember these pumpkin-colored pumps when I die too? Who will remember how we slid into them, like girls diving into a cedar-tinged lake, like bees entering the trumpet of a flower, like birds disappearing into the green, green leaves of summer? After about, my wife and I have been together for 34 years, and after about the first 20, it occurred to me that all the things that irritated me were really wonderful fodder for poetry. (laughs) It took me a while. I'm not quick. But now... as soon as she does something that really annoys me, my first thought is, hmm, can I do anything with that? And so, uh, thank you to her for this poem. It's called Taking Off the Front of the House. I'm at the kitchen table drinking strong tea eating eggs with poppy gold yolks from our chickens, Marilyn, and Estelle. There's a red car parked across the street and my neighbor's gorgeous irises, their frilled tongues tasting the air. Monsanto is suing Vermont, I say, turning the pages of the Times. I say it loud because Janet's in the living room, in the faded chair the cat has scratched into hay eating yogurt and the strawberries she brought home from the field, where she labors to relieve the tender berry of its heavy chemical load. What, she says. She isn't wearing her hearing aids, so I take a breath and project my voice. And as I enunciate the corporate evils, suddenly the front of the house is sheared away. We're on a stage, the audience seated on the asphalt of Young Love Avenue, watching this quirky couple eat their breakfast and yell back and forth (laughs) from one room to another. And throughout the day, as I throw a load of laundry in the dryer, answer the phone, as Janet lies on the couch reading Great Expectations, and we bicker about the knocking in the pipes and whether we really need to call a plumber. I admire how the actor who plays the character of me and the actor who plays the character of her perform our parts so perfectly (laughs) in this production that will last just a little while before it closes for good. And when night comes, we smoke a little weed, something called Thunderfuck, (laughs) which must be someone's high opinion of himself. But in truth, it's quite nice, though we only take a couple tokes since Janet's on blood pressure medication. And she can't do the way she did at 20 when she slung a goatskin bag over her shoulder and wandered around Senegal in flip-flops. As I reach for her, she says, now the audience can sit on the back deck by the barbecue. And this play can be called. The old lesbians go to bed at the end of the day. (laughs) I light the candle her mother gave me for my last birthday, when she could still put on her lipstick, and Janet pushed her around the store in her wheelchair, and the dog still on his mat on the floor of the closet because he's afraid of firecrackers and took up sleeping there last 4th of July on top of the shoes. The set is authentic. A messy stack of books on my nightstand, on her side reading glasses, and the hearing aids that sit there all day. (laughs) And as she turns toward me, and I feel again the marvelous architecture of her hips. The moon, that expert in lighting, rises over the roofline, flooding us in her old, flawless, silvery wash. This poem's called Waiting for Rain. Finally, morning. This loneliness feels more ordinary in the light, more like my face in the mirror. My daughter in the ER again, something she ate, some freshener someone spritzed in the air. They're trying to kill me, she says as though it's a joke. Lucretius got me through the night. He told me the world goes on making and unmaking. Maybe it's wrong to think of better and worse. There's no one who can carry my fear for a child who walks out the door not knowing what will stop her breath. The rain, they say, is coming, sails now over the Pacific, in purplish, nimbus clouds, but it isn't enough. Last year, I watched elephants encircle their young, shuffling their massive legs without hurry, flaring their great, dusty ears. Once they drank from the snow melt of Kilimanjaro. Now the mountain is bald. Lucretia's nose were just atoms combining and recombining, stardust, flesh, grass. All night, I plastered my body to Janet, breathing when she breathed. But her skin, warm as it is, does, after all, keep me out. How tenuous it all is. My daughter's coming home next week. She'll bring the pink plaid suitcase we bought at Ross. When she points it out to the escort, pushing her wheelchair, it will be easy to spot on the carousel. I just want to touch her. This next poem um, came about because um, Janet and I became increasingly concerned about the ways in which the uh, animals that we ate, the meat that we ate, was raised. And we decided to try to find um, meat that was more uh, sustainably and humanely raised. And we thought we'd start with looking for chickens that were raised better. And um, the more we investigated what was available uh, around our area, the less satisfied we were with what we found out. And just about then, uh, some uh, young friends of ours were raising uh, chickens on their land, and they said that they would raise some for us if we were interested, and then we could just buy them from them. So that seemed like a great solution, and uh, we said we'd love to do that. And then three months went by, and they called up and asked if we would like to help with the slaughter. And um, some of you may have grown up on farms and know about this sort of thing, but um, I didn't. Um, And so uh, I said yes, because I felt that uh, I wanted to be willing to, if I was going to eat it, I felt I should be willing to uh, kill it. And so um, the the experience was very intense for me, and I wanted to investigate it. And that's often what leads me to write a poem is to try and understand what was what was this about for me. And so that's that's what happened. I really wanted to explore my reaction. Um, And uh, the poem is called What Did I Love. What did I love about killing the chickens? Let me start with the drive to the farm as darkness was sinking back into the earth, the road damp and shining like the snail's silver ribbon and the orchard with its bony branches. I loved the yellow rubber aprons and the way Janet knotted my broken strap and the stainless steel altars we bleached, Brian sharpening the knives, testing the edge on his thumbnail, all 88 Cornish hens huddled in their crates, wrapping my palms around their white wings, lowering them into the tapered urn. Some seemed unwitting, as the world narrowed, some cackled and fluttered, some struggled. I gathered each one, tucked her bright feet, drew her head through the kill cone's sharp collar, her courage beak, and the rumpled red vascular comb that once kept her cool as she pecked in her mansion of grass. I didn't look into those stone eyes. I didn't ask forgiveness. I slid the blade between the feathers and made quick crescent cuts, severing the arteries just under the jaw. Blood like liquor pouring out of the bottle. When I see the nub of heart later, it's hard to believe such a small star could flare like that. I lifted each body, bathing it in heated water, until the scaly membrane of the shanks sloughed off under my thumb. And after they were tossed in the large plucking drum, I loved the newly naked birds, sundering the heads and feet neatly at the joints, a poor man's riches for golden stock, slitting a fissure, reaching into the chamber, freeing the organs, the spill of intestines the blue-tinged gizzard, the small purses of lungs, the royal hearts, easing the floppy liver carefully from the green gallbladder, its bitter bile, and the fascia unfurling like a transparent fan. When I tug the esophagus down through the neck, I love the suck and release as it lets go, then slicing off the anus, with its gray pearl of shit. Over and over, my hands explore each cave, learning to see with my fingertips, like a traveler in a foreign country, entering church after church, in every one the same figures of the Madonna, Christ on the cross, which I'd always thought was gore, until Marie said to her it was tender the most tender image, every saint and political prisoner, every jailed poet and burning monk. But though I have all the time in the world to think thoughts like this, I don't. I'm empty as I rinse each carcass, and this is what I love most. It's like when the refrigerator turns off and you hear the silence. As the sun rose higher, We shed our sweatshirts and moved the coolers into the shade. But other than that, no time passed. I didn't get hungry. I didn't want to stop. I was breathing from some bright reserve. We twisted each pullet into plastic, iced and loaded them in the cars. I loved the truth, even in just this one thing, looking straight at the terrible, One-sided accord we make with the living of this world. At the end, we scoured the tables, hosed the dried blood, the stain blossoming through the water. This next poem was inspired by these lines from Rilke, where he says, everything here seems to need us. And um, I wrote it a number of years ago, but when I was thinking about coming here today and which poems I wanted to read, I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is really, really timely now um, in a way that I hadn't anticipated when, when I wrote the poem. It's called The World Has Need of You. I can hardly imagine it as I walk to the lighthouse, feeling the ancient prayer of my arms swinging in counterpoint to my feet. Here I am, suspended between the sidewalk and twilight, the sky dimming so fast it seems alive. What if you felt the invisible tug between you and everything? A boy on a bicycle rides by, his white shirt open, flaring behind him like wings. It's a hard time to be human. We know too much and too little. Does the breeze need us? the cliffs, the gulls? If you manage to do one good thing, the ocean doesn't care. But when Newton's apple fell toward the earth, the earth ever so slightly fell toward the apple and it made me made me think about how maybe all the things that we try to do even though they seem very small matter this next poem I wrote um, I have a number of transgendered people in my extended family and um, I wanted to say something. I wanted to think about about that in a poem. And I I didn't know how to approach it. And um, I started thinking, well, maybe there's a poem that I could use in some way as a template. And what I thought of was, a poem that many of you know, Christopher Smart's poem "Jubilate Agnes," where he considers his cat Jeffrey. And I love that poem, and um, and I thought that maybe I could take a lot um, from from Christopher Smart's poem and somehow talk about this, and so. Um, I call this um, Jubilate Homo, Homo as in uh, man or person, um, after Christopher Smart. For I will consider the transgendered person, for he or she may be the servant of a less violent world. For at the first touch of his nipples, he feels breasts roosting like plump birds. For this is done by wreathing his body seven times round with elegant longing. For secondly, he stains his lips, fire and ice, bruised plum, lasting kiss. For thirdly, he who is becoming she cuts the glands into a clitoral diamond. For fourthly, she who is becoming who she always has been reverses the phallus to a cave of consolation. For fifthly, she bleeds. For sixthly, she lies still with a smooth stent in her vagina. For seventhly, she carries home groceries in the twilight. For eighthly, she sleeps hard. For there is nothing sweeter than her peace when at rest. For there is little more fierce than the need to be known. For Artemis cut the soft flesh from her chest, the truer to shoot her arrow. For Joan of Arc cropped her hair and dressed in armor, though it meant death. For jazz musician Billy Tipton married and raised three children who discovered his past at his death. For a wife might not question caresses clothed in darkness if her husband's hands made her feel royal. For even he and she are false. For it is tinged with the taste of metal. For words are struggling to be born like any animal. For Tiresias could understand bird song and read the future in fire. For my task is to praise all I don't understand. For there are more sexes than wildflowers. For the eye of the male and the eye of the female is the same eye the same dark well of the pupil. For Passion Star, in a Texas jail, let her be safe from those who have torn the bud of her anus and razored her flesh. For Fred Martinez, Navajo transgender girl, whose killer crushed her skull, whose killer sliced her open at the belly whose killer left her dying by the side of the road, let her be remembered. For we are delivered to this small earth spinning. For we are delivered glazed with vernix and blood. For the truest drum is desire. For we can divine but a glimpse of what is. For the streets of our bodies wind as a labyrinth. For we have only one another to cling to, to be kind to, to despise. This poem is called, If You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport. When the car in front of me doesn't signal. When the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you. I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek, when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? Marriage, when you finally, after long illness, lay the length of your body on mine, isn't it like the strata of the earth, the pressure of time on sand, mud, bits of shell, all the years, uncountable wakings, sleepings, sleepless nights, fights, ordinary mornings talking about nothing, and the brief fiery plummets, and the unselfconscious silences of animals grazing. The moving water, wind, ice that carries the minutes leaves behind minerals that bind the sediment into rock. How to Bear the Weight with every flake of bone pressed in. Then, how to bear when the weight is gone, the way a woman whose neck has been coiled with brass can no longer hold it up alone. Oh, love, it is balm, but also a seal. It glues us tight as the fur of a rabbit to the rabbit. When you strip it, Grasping the edge of the sliced skin, pulling the glossy membranes apart, the body is warm and limp. Just a minute before, you were murmuring to it. If you could, you'd climb inside that wet, slick skin and carry it on your back. This is not neat and white and lacy like a wedding. Not the bright effervescence of champagne spilling over the throat of the bottle. This visceral, bloody union that is love, but beyond love. Beyond charm and delight, the way you to yourself are past charm and delight. This is the shucked meat of love, the alleys and broken glass of love, the petals torn off the branches of love the dizzy, hoarse cry, the stubborn hunger. I wrote that this next poem is called Any Common Desolation. And I wrote it when I was having a common desolation. (laughs) um, But as you'll see in the poem, uh, I looked up and saw these two colors together. And the poem was inspired because a a good friend of mine who loves color and is an artist said that to her, the right two colors put together is as good as an orgasm. And that always stayed with me because I had never thought of color like that at all. And um, so thank you, Claire. Any common desolation can be enough to make you look up at the yellowed leaves of the apple tree, the few that survived the rains and frost, shot with late afternoon sun. They glow a deep orange gold against a blue so sheer a single bird would rip it like silk. You may have to break your heart, but it isn't nothing to know even one moment alive. The sound of an oar in an oarlock, or a ruminant animal tearing grass. The smell of grated ginger the ruby neon of the liquor store sign, warm socks. You remember your mother, her precision a ceremony as she gathered the white cotton, slipped it over your toes, drew up the heel, turned the cuff. A breath can uncoil as you walk across your own muddy yard, the Big Dipper pouring night down over you, and everything you dread. All you can't bear dissolves, and like a needle slipped into your vein, that sudden rush of the world This poem is called Enough, and it begins with uh, an epigraph from uh, Arthur Rambeau. Enough seen, enough had, enough. No, it will never be enough. Never enough wind clamoring in the trees, sun and shadow handling each leaf. Never enough clang of my neighbor hammering the iron nails, relenting wood, sound waves lapping over roofs, never enough bees purposeful at the throats of lilies. How could we be replete with the flesh of ripe tomatoes, the unique scent of their crushed leaves? It would take many births to be done with the thatness of that. Oh, Blame life, that we just want more. Summer rain, mud, a cup of tea. Our teeth, our eyes, a baby in a stroller. Another spoonful of creme brulee. Sweet burnt crust, crackling. And hot showers. Oh, lovely, lovely hot showers. Today was a good day. My mother-in-law sat on the porch eating crackers and cheese with a watered-down margarita. And though her nails are no longer stoplight red, and she can't remember who's alive and dead, still, this was a day with no weeping, no unstoppable weeping. Last night, through the small window of my laptop, I watched a dying man kill himself in Switzerland. He wore a blue shirt, and snow was falling onto a small blue house, onto dark needles of pine and fir. He didn't step outside to feel the snow on his face. He sat at a table with his wife and drank poison. Online, I found a plastic bag complete with Velcro and a hole for a tube to a propane tank. I wouldn't have to move our Weber. I could just slide down the stucco to the flagstones where the healthy weeds are sprouting through the cracks. Maybe it wouldn't be half bad to go out looking at the yellowing leaves of the old camellia, and from there I could see the chickens scratching, if we still have chickens then. And yet, this little hat of life, how will I bear to take it off while I can still reach up? Snug woolen watch cap, lacy bonnet, yellow cloche with a yellow veil. I wore the Easter I turned 13 when my mother let me promenade with Tommy Spagnola on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. (laughs) Oxygen, oxygen, the cry of the body, and you always want to give it what it wants. But I must say, no, enough, enough with more tenderness than I have ever given to a lover, the gift of the nipple hardening under my fingertip, more tenderness than to my newborn, when I held her still flecked with my blood. I'll say the most gentle refusal to this dear, dumb animal and tighten the clasp around my throat that once was kissed and kissed, until the blood couldn't rest in its channel but rose to the surface like a fish that couldn't wait to be caught. I wrote that poem after watching my mother-in-law, who I was very close to, go through a long period of dementia. How can we be getting to the end? It seems like we're just getting to know each other. (laughs) I'm going to end with this short poem. A short little hopeful poem. It's called, After Long Illness. My wife calls. She left the eggs she'd gathered in a small tin pail, and would I bring them in so the dog doesn't eat them? Or maybe he already has. They're by the shed where we're trying to trap the rat, or maybe by the greenhouse. I walk out in my robe and slippers, crushing some mint which rewards me with its sharp identity. And there is the pail by the coop. And there are two eggs, cold and whole, with a fleck of wood shaving stuck to one, as though a child had just begun to decorate it, maybe making a horse with a tiny fetlock. Thank you. Thank you, so much. Thank you
1: Thank you, Alan. so much for that wonderful reading. If you have a question for Ellen, you can pass it to an usher. Ellen, I would love it if you would begin by talking a little bit about your childhood and about your family's personal and historical background and how that shaped you as a person and a poet. Yes. Uh, um, can you hear it, Ellen? Can
0: you hear? Can you hear? Yes. Okay. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, yes, I, I was thinking about that um, today, actually a lot because of um, the Seattle being a sanctuary city. And Santa Cruz, where I live in California, is also a sanctuary city. Um, my father uh, came to this country from Russia uh, as a very small child escaping pogroms. If he had not immigrated, we wouldn't be listening to me tonight. You might be listening to somebody else, but I wouldn't be here so um that's a um you know something that I think about a lot um, My mother's mother also immigrated from uh Lithuania so um I grew up, um, my, my parents um, owned and worked in a liquor store uh, six days a week, nine in the morning, till 10 o'clock at night. And we lived on top of the store. When I was um, just starting to write poetry as a young adult, and for quite a while, really, it seemed to me that I had a very unexotic childhood. But the longer that I write, the more rich that liquor store is. And I really have to stop myself because I could just write poem after poem about everything in the liquor store. (laughs) Um, It was the hearth of our family. And uh, it's that way in which no matter how incredibly ordinary your life May seem on one level once you start to dig in it just is amazing how much detail there is in any one life, even this you know very mundane life in a tiny little town in New Jersey, two blocks long downtown um, my so my my early life, my there was no one artistic or, you know, conventionally artistic or creative in my family. I was unusual that way. Um, but my mother and father were both uh, role models of hard work and perseverance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that they didn't, like, have to... It's very interesting... <laughs> I, I'm afraid that I'm gonna to answer too long on each question and I'll be <laughs> on no, question. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't. Is this it, is great. OK? It's okay. Yeah, it's All okay. Right. <laughs> I could go please on. Please go on, please don't go on. Okay, so I'll say this. Um, when when uh when, when Janet and I had uh children, she thought that they should do chores uh so that they would learn good habits. And um I thought that they should do chores because I didn't want to do all the work, <laughs> and I didn't really think it mattered if they did chores. Because as a child, I didn't have a single chore ever, ever. But when you lived with my parents, you just knew that that's what you did. You know, I, I didn't—they ha- didn't have to make me make my bed because I just, you know, had this kind of crazy work ethic and. Uh, And so, um, you know, I I love to work, uh, and that's good for a poet because it's so hard that uh, it takes me. Mm -hmm. Not every poet has to work as hard as me, but uh, I do it by work Mm -hmm. is how I do it. And um, and the other thing that I realized that my mother taught me that took me a really long time was precision that um, the most mundane things that she did, she did with just this enormous care and precision. And that was an awakening to me to realize, after she had died, that that was so important as a poet and that I learned that from her.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. In the You didn't read as many of the poems tonight from the l- most recent book, but in that book there are several poems that... Um, have images of you know the mother closing the door of the walk-in with the case of beer on the hip, or folding the, you know the, the so carefully folding the paper around the bottle like origami and handing it to the customer. Yes, and just the precision of those movements. And I'm interested in the repetition of those images in your work and um, the choice to let either let or choose to have those images recur, how do, you, how do you think about, I mean, you have an ode to repetition in the book, too, of course, yes. so, I mean, clearly, repetition is something you love. Um, and how do, how do you think about the way that that works for you and either in the poems as they, um, as they accrue? W- were you thinking about them individually or were you thinking about it on a more macro level as you were putting that book together?
0: Well, I always think about poems individually. And then, um, putting a book together, you know, I try not to have too many that are too similar. Mm-hmm. really, I'd like to put my mother closing the door of the walk-in refrigerator in every poem that mm-hmm. I write and and also mm-hmm. you know her slipping mm-hmm. the the um, half pint or the pint into the precisely sized bag in every poem so. I, I hold myself back, mm-hmm. because I know that everyone isn't as interested in watching my mother in the liquor store, poem after poem, as I might be in in watching. So I just, I just let myself do a certain uh-huh. amount, and then I stop myself. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, as I was reading the poems and thinking about it, it almost felt like... By it recurring in that way, it's almost as if the door never closes to the oh, walk-in, no. you know, or the the transaction yeah. is almost always happening, and there's some sense of that moment always living when it kind of comes back. That's again and how again. it is
0: for me, <laughs> um, and I think I write about this in one poem, um, but that there's. The, it, it, I picture my mother, of course, in many, many ways, but the main way is she's walking out of this, you know, big old-fashioned walk-in. We called it an icebox, even mm-hmm. though it, by that point it was not literally an icebox; it was a refrigerator. I am not quite that old, um, but she'd, you know, walk out. She'd be holding the case of beer. She'd close the door mm-hmm. with her hip. She'd carry it to the counter and kind of sling it onto the counter. Mm-hmm. And that is, that motion is the most iconic mm-hmm. childhood visual mm-hmm.
1: thing that I have. I love the way it recurs and I think... Um, I just yeah. love to talk about yeah. it. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> well, it, I think... It seemed also I mean just the images seemed like this narrative that are it's building, but also as a as an aesthetic choice, as a craft choice, it seemed really interesting to me because I think as poets oh, I think I and I think people are afraid to use the same image if you've used it once you've you've used it, you can't use it again, and I thought actually there was something very interesting happening about the way a word like the word accordion comes back several times in the book or the um, these images recur, and it um I thought. I just thought it was a very interesting choice. Thank you. I'm so um, glad you think it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Um, speaking of accordions, you know, I I did I love the way that um, you begin and end the book with these sort of poems about the universe. You know, the sort of expanding out and sort of contracting back in, and you, you use the the image of the accordion, the accordion or the metaphor several times. And it, um, I wondered if there was a formative ac- accordion in your life. No, no? No. Your dad didn't play the accordion? No. No. So. But, but it is kind of marvelous, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, the yeah. accordion. Tonight we are at dinner over. But or... I don't have
0: any personal connection to accordions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tonight we are at dinner over at Collections Cafe, and I, we looked up, and there was a whole ceiling of accordions stretching over us. And I was like, ah, the accordion It was gorgeous. Yeah. 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 It <laughs> um, was gorgeous. Uh, switching gears, coming forward in your life, during the years that you were not writing, did you know for sure that you would return to writing at some point? Did it feel like it was out there? Excuse me. I was always trying to
0: return. I always wanted mm-hmm. to return. I was always trying to return, and I was always trying to figure out some way that I could keep doing what I was doing and return mm-hmm. to poetry. And after you know many uh, years of... of just finding that just impossible um, to do, um, that's when mm-hmm. I had to decide between the two because I couldn't do them mm-hmm. together. There was a way in which I was so... Uh, uh, that work was was the most deeply gratifying work and such an honor and privilege to, to get to do. Um, and, and while I was doing it, there wasn't anything I wanted to do more. Mm-hmm accept that I did want to keep writing poetry, but um, I couldn't, I found that I was incapable of being that deep in other people's psyches, and Mm -hmm. also going deeply into my own psyche, Mm -hmm. and at a certain point, um, I felt that uh, I just wanted, I wanted my poetry. Mm -hmm. I just Mm -hmm. wanted it, Mm -hmm. and so... Mm -hmm. I chose.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that you know, obviously you've you talked a bit before about coming out of that and how much work that was and working with Dorian Lux to, to find your writing again. Um, I wonder, though, if you have thought or reflected about um, what gifts the pause gave you and what gifts beginning again brought you or your writing that might not have been there if you had just kind of kept going, kept going all the way through.
0: Well, I think that that experience was such a profound experience to, to um, enter so deeply, to be allowed to enter so deeply into um, people's lives, into the most, um, the most tender and um, vulnerable uh, places in their lives, and to join in that uh, suffering and that healing changed me as a person and um, I, I'm sure I wouldn't be the same person or the same poet without it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very hard to return. It was like, I felt like Rip Van Winkle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I felt like, oh my, you know, it, it, how do I even begin? And I don't know how I could have done it without uh, Dorian's mentorship. She just taught me everything that mm-hmm. I Everything really. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, What did she? I know you. you taught for many years before you worked with Dorian, and you've you've taught for many years since. Did what she taught you in those years affect your teaching as well as your writing? Oh yes, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. I really didn't understand the craft Mm -hmm. before that. You know, it was sort of like I would just sometimes hit on something. Mm-hmm. You know, just mm-hmm. kind of bump into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really didn't understand mm-hmm. how how to work. I didn't understand how to how to study uh, the poems that I admired, and mm-hmm. how to um, learn. You know, try and mm-hmm. try and learn to do something similar in some way. And so she really taught me the craft mm-hmm. from the bottom up. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as you mentioned, you um, grew up in New Jersey, and you now live in California. Are there components of your process or aesthetic that feel more East Coast to you, more West Coast? And do you think you're getting more West Coast <laughs> as you get older, whatever that means to you? Or is it the other way around? Are you getting more East Coast? It's very
0: interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that if you... I, I came to the West Coast when I was... 27. And so I'm always going to be like a transplant. I mean, as long as I live in California, you know, I'm an East Coast Jew. I mean, that's, you know, I interrupt people, I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, in my family, the way that you had a conversation is that if you, you know, sense somebody losing even a little bit of steam. <laughs> then you just start to come in with more force and talk louder than them and overpower them. And and that's how the speaker changes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it still amazes me that my kids are Native Californians. Mm. Like, how could that be? <laughs> but I, I love living on the West Coast. I do. I love it a lot. Um... I don't I don't know how to answer about my poetry and being East and
1: West. <laughs> it seemed like you were going to say something else. I know. So. It's
0: always, it amazes anyone when I stop talking. <laughs> okay. Once, okay. Once every couple of years, Janet will say something to me, and I won't say anything back. <laughs> and she'll go... Oh, my
1: God. (laughs) Speaking of Janet, Mm. what does Janet think of the annoying Janet poems?
0: She, She mostly loves them. She mostly loves them. She's glad she can inspire me.
1: (laughs) Hopefully she doesn't work harder to inspire you. (laughs) Um, There are lots of odes in Like a Beggar, as opposed to your earlier books. What changed with this book? Why the impulse to praise now, or at least to name it as a praise?
0: Yeah. Um, I didn't understand this until I looked back on the book, but um, that book, took me seven years. Mm -hmm. And um, the first four or five of those years was a very, very personally difficult time in my life. And when I looked and I saw all those oaths, I went, what? Mm. And the sense that I made of it, which seemed right to me, was that I had to find things to praise. And that it was um, a way to uh, the 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 epigraph of um, of like a beggar is from Rilke, mm-hmm. and he says, "Oh poet, tell oh you know oh poet, tell me what do you do? I praise, but those dark, deadly, devastating ways, how do you bear them, suffer them? I praise, mm-hmm. and so." I realized that Mm -hmm. that's what I was doing. And um, it also was a kind of a a magical thing in terms of writing for me that uh, when I didn't know how to put any words on the page, at the top, if I just wrote ode to something, (laughs) it was like immediately I had an orientation. Mm -hmm. I had a, a way to approach it. And that's often the one of the hardest parts for me is just how to approach. Mm-hmm. And you know, once I can approach, then
1: I can um, have a have a chance. Right. Does the prayer form seem like a, a sim- similar template that can work in that way for you? Because you, you have a number of prayer poems yes. as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of odes, and you you have there's a poem that is a, in part about Neruda. You say. Quote, the great ones regard every moment like this, catch it as it swims. Who are some of your great ones? Well, Neruda. Besides Neruda, <laughs> I, w- I would assume, I would hope you would be included.
0: Yeah, and there's so many, it's it's hard, but I could just say ones that kind of come to me right away. Um, y- you know, uh, uh, Keats. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, when we get more contemporary, my great good fortune to study with Anne Sexton, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Muriel Rukeyser, mm-hmm. who I don't think we read enough of. Uh, Muriel Rukeyser, I'm sure she's gonna. Yes, thank you. Yeah, come... she'll come back into vogue one of these days. But why don't we just bring her back into vogue now mm-hmm. and not have to wait? You know, she's she's such a, a great great poet. Um, I, there's so many, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to know uh, even who to name. Um, I love Gerald Stern. Mm-hmm. I love Stanley mm-hmm. Kunitz, um, and then so many amazing contemporary poets who, uh, you know, both really known and and not so well known. I always love to give my Shout out to Frank Gaspar, who I think is one of our amazing contemporary poets that is unknown. So, if you're looking for like a new poet to read, um, and then you know, our great poets writing today, mm-hmm. you know, Mark Doty, mm-hmm. Mark Doty, Mark Doty. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so many great mm-hmm. poets. Um, you mentioned um, sort of never being quiet. And there's a question from the audience here, actually, that's interesting in contrast to that. It says, you read silence very well. How did you learn to do that? Reading silence.
0: What a wonderful thing, reading silence. I wish I knew. Could the person who said Mm -hmm. it tell me more? Because there's so many ways to interpret reading silence i love that phrase but i'd like to actually speak to the thing you mean if you are don't mind just telling me you might be shy and not want to and that's okay if you are but what does, what do you think that means reading silence
1: i mean i feel like there's to me okay. two two ideas spring to my one okay. is either your actual reading Style of making silence of in reading, that reading, perhaps, and yeah. also of, or of more metaphorically of reading into silence or reading silence. Mm-hmm. But
0: well, I think that you know, although I am a joke about it, but you know, really, am a big talker. I'm. I'm also not afraid of silence. Mm-hmm. Um, silence is a precious thing, and it's uh, it's a really important thing in poetry. Is it? it the silence is as important as the words. Um, that's what makes the music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I read, I'm not, you, you, you know, I, w- I want there to be that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, poetry is so dense that if that silence isn't there, it just gets all smashed together. Um, mm-hmm. so I, tr- I try and read in a way that makes room for the silence mm-hmm. um, but I also think that silence is so beautiful mm-hmm. um, in, in every way you know, I mean in, in conversation even mm-hmm. you know, and waiting for the person to you know, I, I have lived here a long time mm-hmm. in the West Coast, so now I I do wait to hear what somebody's going to (laughs) say. I don't always interrupt them. Yeah,
1: Um, Your poetry has traditionally been political, especially as it relates to our environment and the planet. Um, I was curious about how, if you were writing about the current political moment yet, and perhaps the poem that you shared with us, the poem about being transgender, is... Referencing the moment uh, a little bit, I wonder if you find your poems shifting on their axis a bit, and how you are both resisting and staying hopeful in this particular moment, both pol- politically and personally, poetically, politically, personally. All the P's. That's a big question. Yeah. In,
0: well, in terms of the poetry, I can. I can. That's easy to say. I would, if I could, I would write more poems that are. Politically relevant Mm -hmm. to our times, I feel like that's something that a poet should do if they can. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are they're they're hard to come by for me, Um, but I think Mm -hmm. that it's a it's a feels like a real gift when one will. cooperate, when one will offer itself mm-hmm. up to me, when I can find, again, a way to approach mm-hmm. something that's really important happening in our world. Um, if I could, I would, I would write mm-hmm. so many more of those. Uh, but only, only some mm-hmm. are accessible to me. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, in terms of uh, you know, uh, hope and despair now, I feel like, um, to be really honest, uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel very um, adjusted. Mm-hmm. Um, it still feels s- like so raw and so new and I admire so much uh, the writers who have been able to write intelligently and um, eloquently right away about what's going on. I, I, I just uh, appreciate and admire that so much. But uh, I am probably not going to be one of them um, because I'm, I'm, it, it takes me a long time. Um, and so um, I'm a naturally hopeful person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just gonna kind of wind up being hopeful in spite of the evidence. Um, but uh it is uh, you know, it, I'm I, I also am not, you know, uh just uh in La La Land, you know, so uh it's grim, right? Mm-hmm. It's grim. Um and But I'm a a worker bee, like my mother. And so I think and believe, and I'm really kind of thrilled by uh, the level of action and resistance that we see happening. Mm -hmm. And I feel really, really hopeful about that. And we just, I think if we just keep that up, uh, it
1: makes our odds better. Mm Well, I know that I'm happy to be here with you tonight in this room listening to poetry, listening to your poetry, which gives me hope. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Have a good night. Thank you you so much.